You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, If we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The 200-proof strength of the Gospel in Romans. Good morning. Welcome again to Gospel Community Church. Uh, if I don't know you, or you don't know me, my name is Brad. One of the pastors here at GCC, I am the executive pastor, which sounds way fancier than it actually is. Basically means I oversee uh, all of the boring sides of church, like finances and administration and HR and all that kind of stuff. So you can think of it like the junk drawer in your kitchen. I kind of just do a little bit of everything. Uh, and occasionally I get the opportunity to preach, which I really enjoy, and I'm thankful for uh, yeah, for to get to to get to do that every once in a while. So we're going to continue our series through the gospel or the letter to the Romans, the church in Rome. So if you will open up your Bibles to Romans chapter four, we're going to finish chapter four this morning as we keep making our way through this epistle. Romans chapter four. If you'll read with me, verses thirteen through twenty-five, it says, "For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him 
as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Uh, Your mercies are new every morning. Every day is a gift that we have not earned and do not deserve, but that you give freely as an opportunity for us to grow in our knowledge of you and your love for us and bring glory to your name. And I pray that that would take place here this morning, that as we look at this section of scripture, uh, of your word that you've given to us, we would see you clearly, that you would use this to uh, convict our hearts where there's areas of, of sin and disobedience, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, uh, challenge us. Um, God, grow us more and more into the image of your son, not just as individuals, but as to our bride, the church. God, I pray that our church would be rooted and grounded in your love and in the gospel, and that that would uh, produce fruit in our relationships with one another and our relationship with the world and community around us as we seek to advance your kingdom here in Lane County. pray that you would uh, speak through me and use this time in your word uh, to make much of Jesus Christ uh, and transform our hearts and lives by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my family and I live out in Thurston, uh, which for some reason seemed to get hit the hardest by the most recent ice storm. Uh, I don't know what it is about Thurston, but we must have a lot of trees or something. Uh, it got uh, ravaged really bad by the storm. And our family lost power on the Saturday night of that first weekend. And we didn't get it back until just this last Monday, nine days later. And every day, uh, Sub, Springfield Utility Board, would release updates on the uh, restoration efforts on their website for customers to read. So every morning and every evening, Jenna and I would check the Sub website to see how much damage had they assessed, how much progress had they made, if any, in bringing power back. And after a few days of reading these updates, I noticed that they started including a promise in the midst of all of all these updates. They never promised a definite timeline, like you will have power back by a certain date, which I actually really appreciated, but they did start to promise that we would, in fact, get power back. But I didn't even know that this was a question. I never doubted that uh, uh, we would ever uh, not have power. I never assumed they would just leave people in the dark. Uh, But in the midst of all these updates on the problems that they were addressing, there was this promise, you will, in fact, get your power back. My guess is they got a ton of complaints and concerned customers thinking that they were going to live in the dark for forever. And so they were assuring people that 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 was not the case. So during the week, uh, we face a lot of problems. And I say problems, they're really light in the grand scheme of things, but we tried to figure out places to stay. Uh, What are we going to feed our kids? We don't have power to cook. Uh, Where are we going to nap the kids? We needed to make sure our fridge and freezer were cleaned out or try to find a generator so on and so so forth. But as we waded through these problems, there was always that promise that we could hold on to. Eventually, we would get our power back. And that's a picture uh, that we see in today's text, which explores the relationship between problems and promises. And what we're going to see, our main point today for this sermon and the main point of this text is that faith sees problems in light of promises. Faith sees problems in light of promises. Chapter four in Romans has been all about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of God. And it's not just that the Gentiles are included, but he's also exploring what the basis of that inclusion is. The gospel is not just for the Jews. It is for all people. And Paul is making that clear by laying out arguments for why that is the case. In this chapter, he's been using Abraham, the father of the Jewish people to argue his point. 
The story of Abraham makes clear that justification is not based on someone's Jewishness, but on faith in God and entrusting in the person and work of Jesus. Paul addresses three core tenets of Judaism that one might have thought gained them righteousness before God, and he shows how this, in fact, is not the case. And last week, Rick covered two of these core tenets, works and circumcision. It wasn't Abraham's good works that made him right with God. He was declared righteous before he went and did anything uh, to prove his faith. And it also wasn't his circumcision that made him right with God. He was declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15, and it wasn't circumcised until later in Genesis chapter 17. And so in verse 13, the beginning of our text this morning, Paul now turns to that third tenet of Judaism, which is the law. So this morning, as we work through this text, we're going to see three sections or or three kind of movements through this passage. First, we're going to see that the promise of God is secured by faith and not the law. Second, we're going to see that or what the nature of this saving faith is. And then third, we'll see what Abraham's faith has to do with us. So first, faith secures the promise of God, not the law. Look at verse 13 again. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So first of all, let's take a step back. What exactly is this promise? It's a promise that God made to Abraham and his offspring, Abraham and his descendants, his family, and it's a promise that he would be heir to the world. In Genesis 12 and 17, God makes a promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation and that this nation would be a blessing to the rest of the world. This promise has multiple implications. First, it's a promise, obviously, of blessing. Blessing to Abraham, the individual. Blessing to his offspring, the the family and nation that would come from him. And blessing to the world through that nation. The descendants of Abraham would be a blessing to the world. Second, it's a messianic promise. It's a promise of the Messiah. Because Jesus comes from the family of Abraham. He was an Israelite, a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and he's the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham because it's through him that all the people of the world would receive that blessing. And then third, it's, it, this, this promise is eschatological, meaning it has to do with the end. It's a promise of salvation and deliverance, of final salvation. Abraham does become a great nation, and he does bring blessing to the world through the person, the Messiah of Jesus, who is the one who delivers salvation. And part of that salvation is an inheritance, an inheritance for all those who would believe in Jesus. In the end, it's the followers of Christ who will inherit the earth. It's the followers of Jesus who will live in the kingdom of God for eternity and rule over the new heavens and the new earth in perfect relationship with our creator. And this promise, this promise of blessing, salvation, deliverance, and an inheritance is secured for Abraham, not by the law, but through faith. And Paul's argument for this is threefold. His first argument is a historical one. It's the same that he used for works and circumcision. Simply put, the promise was made to Abraham centuries before the law ever came to be. The law was introduced to the Israelites through Moses, who lived hundreds of years later. So historically speaking, Abraham's righteousness and this promise he received could not have come through the law. His second argument is logical and linguistic. So look at verses 14 through 16. It says, for if it, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law. If there is, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So Paul lays out two categories of thought. 
two categories of language. There's faith and promise and grace, and that belongs in one category. And then there's law and transgression and wrath, and that belongs in a different category. The logical order of things goes like this. God's law brings transgression and transgression brings wrath. Uh, transgression is a deliberate, is deliberate disobedience to God's law. It's knowing the law and still choosing to disobey it. So if I accidentally wander onto private property unknowingly, I'm still trespassing and I'm still breaking the law. If I see a no trespassing sign and then go onto private property, now all of a sudden I've become a transgressor. I knew the law and still deliberately chose to break it. And so it's not as though we are not guilty until we have the law. Paul has already established that everyone is guilty before God, whether we have access to his law or not. Rather, it's that we become doubly guilty when we have the law. I don't know if doubly is a word, but it sounds kind of right. Okay, we become guilty double, double guilty. You know what I mean? The law introduces transgression because no one is able to fulfill the law. And the transgression then results in God's wrath. And the logical out, that's the logical outcome of the law. The logical order of promise is very different. Out of God's grace, he makes promises, which we believe and then receive blessing. God did not tell Abraham, obey this law and I will bless you. He said, I will bless you. Now believe. Law language is you shall language, and it demands obedience. Promise language is I will language, and it demands faith. And God makes a promise to Abraham. He doesn't give him the law. So it's logically inconsistent to say that the promise to Abraham is based on the law. It belongs in a different category of thought and language. His last argument is a theological one. Look at verse 16 again. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. God's plan has always been to include Gentiles in his promises. God chose the Israelites out of the nations of the world to mediate his presence and blessing to the world, but always planned to provide salvation to all people. The law divides. It separates people from a cultural and ceremonial standpoint, but grace and faith unites. Grace and faith make the promise of God available to anyone and everyone, both the Jew and the Gentile, which has been God's purpose all along. Grace, then, is the great equalizer. It levels the playing field. It makes God's promise of salvation available to anyone, regardless of their ethnicity, background, or socioeconomic status. So by looking at Abraham, Paul is making clear that righteousness, salvation, justification, His great promise of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ does not depend on works. It does not depend on circumcision, and it does not depend on the law. It's a promise made by God's grace that is received by faith and faith alone. And it might seem like we've been talking about this for the last eight weeks in Romans, because we kind of have been. Paul is really hammering this point home that salvation is received by faith. And it might seem a little like overkill. We kind of get it, Paul. Salvation is by grace through faith, not works, not the law, not religion. So why is he returning to this so much? I think a couple things to note here. First, I think he makes this so clear because the human heart is prone to wander into a works-based righteousness. Rick talked about this last week, but we're so conditioned in our world to view things in terms of working and earning. Everywhere else in our life, we get back what we put into something, but the gospel is different. It's counterintuitive. 
The gospel gives us something we don't deserve without, without us doing anything to earn it. And that's a hard concept for us to grasp, and so we need to be reminded of it often. But I also think that Paul is laying a theological foundation to address a very practical problem that was common in the early church and the church of Rome. If you remember, <laughs> we should remember this, Paul is a real person writing a very real letter to a real church that had real people in it who had real problems. And one of those problems in the early church was disunity and division between Jews and Gentiles. The faith, the, the Christian faith, faith was initially a very Jewish faith. Jesus was a Jew from the family of Abraham. His followers were Jewish. The Hebrew Bible was their scripture. But as the gospel message spreads beyond the confines of Judaism and starts to include the Gentiles, non-Jews, who don't have the same ethnicity or religious heritage, that this starts to cause problems. If these Gentiles want to be part of this, this faith, this religion, this, this, the way that, as they called it, they need to become Jewish. They need to start ascribing to Jewish laws and customs. So Paul is breaking this down by showing how works, circumcision, and the law don't make you right with God. Faith does. And anyone can have faith, whether they're Jewish or not. Now, this specific problem, Jew-Gentile, is not common necessarily in the church today, but disunity and division is. And the theological foundation for addressing Jew and Gentile division in the early church is the same theological foundation for addressing any other kind of division or disunity in every church. Grace is the great equalizer. It levels the playing field. We all arrive at the foot of the cross the same way, broken, sinful, and in desperate need of an outside source to save us. And so this should squash pride and produce humility in us. And in humility, we can have unity and harmony within the church. In humility, we can engage in conflict. We can understand that we are going to hurt and be hurt by others. We can forgive. We can have difficult conversations. We can address sin. We can disagree on secondary theological issues. We can try and fail and try again to pursue one another in relationships. We can reconcile with one another, challenge one another, encourage one another. And when things get difficult within the context of community, we don't have to run and hide because we all come to the table the same way not by our moral performance or religious adherence or Christian family heritage, but by invitation. Invitation from a gracious God that is received by faith. Our righteousness is not secured by our works. It's not secured by how religious we are. And it's not by following the law. We all receive a promise of grace by faith. So let's move on now to the second part of this passage. If the promise is secured by faith, not the law, then what is the nature of this faith? Look at verse 18. It says, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. It's kind of a strange statement that Paul uses here. In hope, he believed against hope. It's like a hopeless hoping. It's reasonable, yet without reason. It's a faith that sees problems in light of promises. God's promise of blessing and salvation to the world, to Abraham, was dependent upon Abraham having a son. Everything hinged on that. In order for God's promise to be fulfilled, Abraham had to have a child with his wife, Sarah. But there's a problem. Two problems, two pretty big problems. Verse 17, or verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of his wife, Sarah's womb. So Abraham is as old as dirt. He's super old, almost 100 years old. And he was as good as dead. That's what the text says. 
And Sarah, she wasn't much younger, and it says that her womb was barren. And it's actually the same word that refers to death that is used to describe Aaron, or used to describe Abraham. So you could read this, the deadness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham, old, body is dead. Sarah, also old, womb is dead. By all accounts, considering the facts of the situation, God's promise to Abraham was impossible. There's too many problems. Their biological clock had run out, and it was too late for them to have children. But... Abraham saw these problems in light of God's promise, and he believed. It says his faith didn't weaken, he never wavered, and he grew stronger and stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God. Which is interesting, because if you've read the story of Abraham, it really seems like his faith was weakened and that he wavered. In Genesis, immediately after God told Abraham he would give him the land of Canaan and that he would have a child by his wife, Sarah, Abraham leaves the land of Canaan and gives his wife away to a foreign king. And then shortly later, he gives his wife away a second time. And then even later, he tries to take having a child into his own hands and gets his wife's slave pregnant. And yet during all of that, Paul tells us that Abraham never wavered which tells us that it's not the strength of our faith or the amount of our faith that that secures the promise of God. It's the object of our faith. And this was true of Abraham as well. Abraham saw problems in light of promises because he trusted in the power and faithfulness of the promise maker. Look again at verse 17. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then again, verse 20, verses 20 through 22. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham looked at his circumstances. He saw the problems, but he held on to the promises because he knew the one who made them. The God who made these promises is the God who creates everything out of nothing. And it's the same God who brings or who makes dead things come to life. To a God with creation and resurrection power, the problems that Abraham saw in front of him were nothing. The God of the universe spoke and everything sprang into existence out of nothing. And that same God laughs in the face of death and brings new life when all seems hopeless and lost. To that God, a God of creation and resurrection, a hundred-year-old man who's as good as dead and the dead womb of his wife are no problem at all. What looks like problems to man are opportunities for God to display his power, and Abraham knew this. He believed God was able. He believed he had power, had the ability to do what he had promised. But he didn't just believe that God could do what he promised, but that he would do what he promised. Abraham believed God was powerful, and he believed God was faithful. God wasn't a liar. He was trustworthy. Abraham believed he would be faithful to fulfill his promise, even when all the facts of the situation pointed to a different outcome. I think sometimes we view God as either one or the other. He's either powerful or faithful. He's either great or good. If God is just powerful and not faithful, then we have a relationally distant tyrant who could strike at any moment. We have great respect and reverence for his power, for his ability to do whatever he wants, but no trust or faith or hope that he will use that power for our good. And so we primarily relate to God through fear, fear of judgment, fear of punishment, fear of discipline. If God is just faithful, but not powerful, then we have a really good friend who wants what's best for us, 
that has no ability to make that happen. We feel close to God. We talk to him often. We believe he cares for us, but we don't expect him to actually do anything in our life. And so we relate to God like we would a therapist. We pour out our soul to him, but then we go our own way and try to figure out life on our own power and strength. The God of the Bible is both powerful and faithful. He is great and good. He has the ability and desire to save and transform us. He is our father who is in heaven. He is imminent and transcendent, holy and set apart, while at the same time, personal and relational. He is God and king, father and friend. Abraham believed that God was both powerful and faithful. And so his faith ignored the facts of the situation, rested on the promise of God for his hope and the secure basis of his faith. Abraham's faith saw problems in light of promises because of the power and faithfulness of the promise maker. So lastly, our last movement here in this text, what does this have to do with us? Paul, Paul is talking so much about Abraham and Abraham's faith. What does this have to do with us? Look at verses 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul turns now to his listeners. Just because he's been talking about Abraham this whole time doesn't mean it has nothing to do with us. In fact, it has everything to do with us because the same righteousness that Abraham received is available to us by the same faith. Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith, a faith that saw problems in light of the promises. And we too are counted righteous because of our faith, a faith that sees problems in light of promises. Abraham believed in the promise that God would provide him a son that would become a great nation. And God delivered on that promise. God provided Abraham and Sarah, their son Isaac, in their old age. Isaac had a son named Jacob, who was later called Israel. Israel had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, and Israel became a great nation. But that promise was also messianic, if you remember. It promised Abraham descendants, plural, but also a descendant, singular, who would bring salvation and deliverance to the world. God's promise to Abraham to provide a son points us to another son, the son of God, Jesus Christ who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have no hope of reviving ourselves on our own. Our sin is a problem, and it's an insurmountable problem. It's the biggest problem you or I will ever face. The facts of the situation of our life are that we are hopelessly separated from God and destined for hell. But God made a promise, and that promise is that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is forgiven their sins and given eternal life. Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, meaning that he went to the cross bearing our sin, our transgression, our trespasses, our law breaking, bearing the wrath we deserve. He endured the penalty for our sins, the death and condemnation that belongs to us. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised for our justification. He came out of the tomb that he was buried in, vindicating himself as the son of God, proving everything he said was true and offering to all who would come to him new life. You see, the promise of God in Jesus Christ is a promise of new creation and resurrection. A promise we know that he is able to fulfill because he is the God who creates everything out of nothing and who makes dead things live. Humans are very creative and we have created a lot of really cool things. We have never not once created something out of nothing. We have, we have medical advancements that prolong life 
We can bring people back to life once their heart has stopped and their lungs have stopped breathing, but only temporarily everyone dies. The, the greatest minds, uh, the greatest human minds cannot get around the idea of nothingness and cannot prevent death. And to God, the God of the universe, nothingness is his playground and death is like a short nap that he can wake someone up from. And this is the God that raised and delivered Jesus and provides salvation to all who would have faith in him. And so we can look at the problem of sin in our life in light of the promise of God receive that promise by faith, unite ourselves to Jesus Christ and be counted righteous just as Abraham was. In fact, we actually have more reason to be confident in God than Abraham did because we live on this side of the cross. Abraham was believing in God, fulfilling a promise in the future, and we get to look back and see that that promise has been fulfilled and then believe. In John Stott's commentary on Romans, he says this of this passage, I think this is helpful. It says, it is always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. And there is nobody more trustworthy than God, as Abraham knew, and as we are privileged to know more confidently than Abraham, because we live after the death and resurrection of Jesus, through which God has fully disclosed himself and his dependability. This problem promise framework begins with the problem of sin and the promise of salvation, but it doesn't stop there. For those who are in Christ, there are many promises of God in scripture that we cling to in light of the many many problems in our life that we still face. So I'm going to go through a list. Here's some examples from my own life, problems that I face and promises that I tried to hold on to. I almost daily face the problem of my slow sanctification. I'm not as far along as I would like to be. I still struggle with the same sins. I still trust in my own righteousness I still attempt to hide my brokenness from God and my community because I think I should have obtained a certain level of holiness by now. And that is a problem. But there's also a promise. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I regularly struggle with guilt and shame from past and present sins. I feel like God is displeased or dissatisfied with me. And that is certainly a problem. There's also a promise. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Isaiah 43.3-4 says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I'm often embarrassed by my weaknesses when faced with temptation and given to sin too quickly and easily, and that's a problem. But there's a promise in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, this is Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or in Hebrews 4, 15, we're promised to have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who is tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. I regularly succumb to the fear of man and let people's opinions of me or perceived opinions of me keep me from having difficult conversations, engaging in conflict, or pursuing others in friendship. But the promise of God to Jeremiah that I think applies to us as well is, don't be afraid of him. I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. I struggle with pride. I obsess over my image, how I look, how I sound, what people think of me, and I do and say things for the sole selfish purpose of gaining approval or accolades. But the promise of God is that he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, 
Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, and here's the promise, because he cares for you. Maybe your problems look different than mine. I'm sure they do. Maybe your problem is that you feel alone and abandoned, unloved and unwanted by God and others. Deuteronomy 38.1 says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Maybe your problem is a failing physical body, chronic pain, or declining health. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Maybe your problem is anxiety. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're brokenhearted. Psalm 147.3 assures us there is hope. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Maybe you're struggling with sin, struggling to believe that God's law is good when the desires of the flesh tell you otherwise. But Psalm 19.7 and 8 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Faith these problems in light of promises. And the Bible is full of promises to God's people that can be trusted because God provided, proved his trustworthiness by sending Jesus to be delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. To partially quote the great theologian and artist Sean Corey Carter, otherwise known as Jay-Z, we all have 99 problems, but the trustworthiness of God to fulfill his promises is not one of them. Thanks. I'll be here for like two more minutes. Um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is widely considered one of the most significant pieces of Christian literature in history. It's a novel that tells the story of Christian, a man who is going on a journey from the city of destruction, which represents this world, uh, to the celestial city, which represents heaven. And it's an allegorical take on the life of the Christian and the journey we all go on and experience from this, as we travel from this world to the next. And there's a, a, an excerpt from that story that I think is helpful us this morning. At one point in his pilgrimage, Christian, uh, the main character of this story, slept one night on the grounds of a castle. And it turns out that this castle was Doubting Castle, and it was owned and ran by the giant called Despair. When the giant Despair found Christian, he threw him in his dungeon, and Christian suffered terribly. Despair starved him and beat him severely and mercilessly for days. And on a Friday, the giant Despair told him to kill himself since there was no hope for him. On Saturday, angered that he had not committed suicide, the giant showed him the bones of those who he had previously murdered by tearing them to pieces. He assured him that his end would soon come in the same manner, and then he beat Christian again. At midnight on Saturday, despite his wounds, Christian began to pray, and he continued to pray throughout the night. And then a little before it was day, Christian stood up and broke out into a passionate speech and said, what a fool am I? to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk in freedom. I have a key in my shirt pocket called Promise that will open any door in Doubting Castle. And using the key called Promise, Christian escaped and was free from the torment of despair. 
We often find ourselves in Doubting Castle, being beaten by despair, our vision clouded and obscured by our problems. But all along, in our pocket, we have a key to every single door in that castle, and it's the key of God's promise. So faith sees problems in light of promises because we trust in the power and faithfulness of the promise maker. Let's pray. God, thank you for being true to your word, for having the power, the ability to make good on your promises and the faithfulness and the love and the desire to do so. God, I pray that you would help all of us to rest and trust in your promises, to believe that you are true, to believe that that you will fulfill them, to look at Christ as the anchor of our hope and see that you've already made good on, on the biggest promise to face our biggest problem of sin. Help us to trust in you more. In Jesus' name, amen.